All right, we begin today a, ironically, three-session course on the four last things, which means we're going to have to do uh, an introduction and one of the last things today, and sometime we're going to have to do two last things on one day before the end of this course, which will be two Sundays from now, because the fourth Sunday of Advent, we will be greening the church and getting ready for nine lessons and carols which we now, as a tradition at St. George, do on Advent 4 at the second service. So you can do Advent 4, Eucharist, and all that at the early service. At the late service, we do nine lessons and carols. And during the Sunday school hour, we're running around putting wreaths all up over everything, garlands, and, and I don't think we do tinsel. But, you know, <laughs> greenery, the greenery of the church, the greening of the church. And so we've got to do three, uh, three, in three days, the four last things. And first of all, you might be wondering what the four last things are. We'll get to that forthwith. But notice we'll be praying uh, a new collect today, which has very much uh, a lot to do with the first last thing. So as we begin, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, whose days are without end and whose mercies cannot be numbered, make us, we beseech thee, deeply sensible of the shortness and uncertainty of human life. And let thy Holy Spirit lead us in holiness and righteousness all our days, that when we shall have served thee in our generation, we may be gathered unto our fathers, having the testimony of a good conscience, in the communion of the Catholic Church, in the confidence of a certain faith, in the comfort of a reasonable religious and holy hope, in favor with thee, our God, and in perfect charity with the world, all which we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with the Father and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. The four last things. Sir Thomas More, in the... 15th, 16th century, wrote a work on the four last things which he never completed. He got through the first last thing, and that is death. But as inspiration for his entire work, which he uh, had determined to do, he took this passage from the apocryphal book of Ecclesiasticus. In all thy works, remember thy last end, and thou shalt never sin eternally. He writes about what he, would, uh, he uses as a bit of a, a metaphor. For what would a man give for sure medicine that were of such strength that it would all his life keep him from sickness, namely, if he might by the avoiding of, of sickness be sure to continue in his life 100 years. Now this was written 500 or more years ago. But if you had a pill that you could sell, that would guarantee people 100 years of life, you would be the wealthiest man or woman on the face of the planet. Because this is surely what people are most interested in, exceptionally so in our day. How can I prolong my life to live just a few years longer? You can guess what the first thing is. The first thing is death, by the way. (laughs) And that's what we're talking about today. But he's talking about all all of the the four last things here. If you could sell a a medicine 
And at this time, there was not a uh, pharmacist, it was an apothecary, which I guess is still a word used today. He, he, he runs this metaphor here for, for medicine about the body, and he says this, though, So it is now that these words give us, these words from Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus, So it is now that these words give us all sure medicine by which we, may, we shall keep from sickness not the body but the soul, which shall after this eternally live in joy and be preserved from the deadly life of everlasting pain. And so he says this. This is a bit of a, a little scene here. You go to the physician. The phys physician says, oh boy, you know, this doesn't look good. Uh, the physician sendeth his bill to the apothecary, the pharmacist, which back then it was a guy who had to actually run out into the forest and get the stuff and make the stuff, okay? Sendeth his bill to the apothecary, and therein writeth sometime a costly receipt. We know about that. Costly receipt of many strange herbs and roots fetched out of far countries, long lean drugs, all the strength worn out, and some none such to be gotten. In other words, your pharmacist, your physician says, you're going to need this medicine, and somebody has to run out to the hills hither and yon and find expensive medications, some of which are unattainable, you can't get these, there's a, we're, we're doing a, uh, uh, what do you call that when they do research, we're doing a test on this particular drug, you can sign up for this, uh, but it still may not be available for you, and all those words, even 500 years later, it's the same words, same sense. But he says about this, this word from Ecclesiasticus, remember the last things. He says, but this physician sendeth his bill to thyself, to you. No strange thing therein, no costly thing to buy, nothing far to fetch, but to be gathered all times of the year in the garden of thine own soul. Let us hear then what that wholesome receipt is. This is, remember, saith this bill, thy last things, and thou shalt never sin in this world. Here is a first short medicine, common and well known. These are the four last things. That is to wit, death. Number two, doom, which is an, uh, an ancient word for judgment. So death, judgment, pain, by that he means hell, joy, by that he means heaven. Those are the four last things and the official theme of Advent, long buried under piles of dust, resumed today <laughs> the four last things you don't have to go hither and yon you don't have to spend a lot of money you don't have to ask someone else to consider these things for you they're all right here and that's the the physician's bill uh, to the apothecary the apothecary is you the pharmacist is you for this uh, for this medicine. And so of the four last things. For I little doubt that among four thousand taken out at adventure, we shall not find four score, which is eighty, but shall boldly affirm it for a thing too painful busily to remember these four last things. So out of four hundred people, you've got eighty that say, I don't have time for this. I can't believe it. Everybody else can probably, can probably say, yeah, we've got time for this. And yet, durst I say, I lay a wager that of those 4,000, you shall not find 14 that have deeply thought on them four times. 
in all their days. So we think about our current age, and we think about, uh, you've heard before, how in our culture we not only don't talk about death, we try not to mention it, and we find different words for it, like passed away, or um, what other kind words do we have for dying? Uh, went to his rest. Went to his rest. Uh, transition, that's another one, that's good. Um, what he's, what, he's a simp- what he's simply saying here is that of 4,000 people for which death is inevitable for every single one of them, there probably isn't 14 who are willing to actually think about it. And of those 14, probably they've only thought about it a couple of times. And he says, this is the medicine for the soul. Let's think about it, and especially during a penitential season like Advent. Uh, this, is what, this is what we're bound to do. He says... What availeth thee to know that there is a God if thou think thou little of him? In other words, if you can know that God exists but you don't think anything of him, it doesn't do you much good in your life. If you know that death is upon you either sooner or later, but you won't think about it at all, what good can it possibly do you? It can do you quite a bit of good if you're willing to contemplate If you're not willing to contemplate, it's like knowing that there's a God and being unwilling to contemplate Him. Uh, You'll go about your business not knowing whether your business is worth going about. And so, he continues with a couple of thoughts here. Scripture biddeth thee not know the four last things, but remember them. For as yet, though, we have heard of the judgment or the doom, yet we were never at it. Okay, so we haven't been to the judgment yet. And though we have heard of hell, yet we never came in it. And though we have heard of heaven, yet we never came to it. And though we daily see men die and thereby know the death, yet ourselves we never felt it. These four last things are to be remembered, or at least to be brought to mind and contemplated. Not as if, you've, as if you know everything about them and have experienced everything about them. But there is much fruit to be, let's say, harvested from the contemplation of the four last things, especially in a penitential, a penitential season. So those are the four last things, a quick introduction, and since we've only got three days to do four last things, we've got to get right on to death right away. <laughs> any, any thoughts about the four last things as a theme for Advent? It's a little surprising, I'll mention in the sermon today, I mentioned to some family members this week uh, over Thanksgiving, we had our house full of in-laws, that we're starting a study on the four last things for Advent. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And they said, oh, that ought to be, that ought to be great. <laughs> oh, everybody will be so Christmas, Christmassy after that. They'll just be ready for Christmas. And my argument is, yes, they will be ready for Christmas. Because uh, there's a feast coming. And the feast is best preceded by a fast. And so this is part of our fast, is to consider, first of all, our death. We move on. Now, we've we got to ask ourselves a few questions, first of all. And the, probably the best question is, what is death? And that's the way every professor starts a class. What is macroeconomics? What is home economics? What is... Oh, I don't know. Anything else that a teacher teaches. The first class is, what is this thing? But let's look back to the book of Genesis when we think about death. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to go through the first three chapters here real quick. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou shalt eat thereof thou shalt surely die. First time the word die is ever used in the, in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Before that it's all been creation and new life and new things and new, new this and new that and sprouting things and new life and breathing and moving over the waters. And then suddenly, chapter 2, 17, the word die is entered into our world. Next chapter. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely, surely die. The first lie has been entered in by the third chapter. Am I going to die or am I not going to die? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not for you. You surely will not die. In fact, God is lying to you about this dying thing. So we've got a lie and a die by the third chapter. She took of the fruit thereof. She believed the lie. And she did eat and gave also to her husband with her. And he did eat. And what shall we now believe of the word of the Lord and the word of the enemy? Which one's telling the truth and which one is dying? Well, the Lord said, the moment you eat of it, you will surely die. And what happens right away? Death. Um, And this is probably the best definition of death. The separation of the body from the soul, which acknowledges... That as a human being, you've been created as a body and a soul which belong together. What is death for us is not the dark blackness end of both of those, but the body and the soul are separated. And the body returns to the earth from whence it came. And the body, I mean the soul, is existing in what we would say an intermediate state or something like that. We can't really say but that it's meet and right for the soul and the body to be reintroduced to one another at some point. But nevertheless, who's telling the truth? If you disobey from God, will you live or will you die? The scriptures go on. Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. First murder. Well, we're moving fast now. The word die comes in the chapter, in the second chapter. The first lie comes in chapter 3. And by 4, we're killing each other. There's not even that many people on the face of the planet. We're already killing each other. You can't have a war yet. There's not enough people for a war. But you can kill yet. You can kill already. Chapter 4 goes on. Now this is a descendant of Cain. Lamech said, I have slain a man to my wounding. A young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seven, seventy and sevenfold. Wrath is beginning now. Uh, now you remember the, the context here. God spoke uh, to Cain, for Cain said that his punishment was too great. And the Lord said, all right, I'm going to put a mark on you to, to separate you from the others. And if anyone avenges Cain, you know he'll be avenged sevenfold. And Lamech, the descendant of Cain, says, I've killed someone, not for threatening to kill me, but for offending me. I'll kill him. And anyone who offends me, I'll avenge them, not sevenfold, but seventy and sevenfold. And if you remember, seventy and sevenfold later in the scriptures is forgiveness. So let's connect those two. The Lord is, the Lord is saying... Uh, when St. Peter, oh, we've got no, not enough time for this, but it's pretty good. 
when, when Peter says, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Three times, he says, uh, or seven times, he says. He says, how about 70 times seven? And that's not just a mathematical thing. That's recalling Lamech, who said, I'll kill anyone who even offends me. And St. Peter says, how many times shall I forgive someone who offends me? Same as Lamech, but the total opposite. Oh boy, that's so good. There's a whole sermon right there. <laughs> but anyway, we're still in chapter 4, now we're chapter 5. Uh, speaking of, of Adam, uh, we'll, you can deal with all the rest of the implications of this later, but, and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years before. Okay, that's another conversation. And he died. The end of Adam. The death that was introduced in the Garden of Eden was multiplicitous, multifaceted death, most especially the separation of God and man. But the separation of the body from the soul for Adam happened sure enough. And it would have done him well to have considered that death was inevitable for him, so he would know, therefore, how to live, knowing that I will one day die. And that's exactly what this is all about. Now you re- uh, recognize really the, the essence of the resurrection is the reunion of the body and the soul. The body and the soul have been separated. And when we look at Christ on the cross and his death on the cross, if in your mind somewhere you have had it that the second person of the Trinity, body and soul, has perished and disappeared into nothingness, into the ether, into the darkness. You got it wrong, okay? The body and the soul have been separated, and the body has perished and laid in the tomb. But the soul has gone elsewhere. And the soul is three days later reunited with the body. They reconvene, and there is a resurrection For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but also have everlasting life. By the way, that's a quality of deity, not humanity. He's incorporating himself into you as you are into him. And a quality of divinity has been granted to you in salvation. Everlasting life, Jesus says to Mary. Um at uh, the death of Lazarus. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. He asks her, Believest thou this? And in asking her, he asks us, Do you believe in this? That's part of the question of the season of Advent and the four last things. I am the resurrection. Do you believe that? Don't say it out loud. Don't raise your hand. It's an internal question for you. It's actually a daily question and at times a moment-by-moment question. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Question mark. John 11. So we've got death. We've got resurrection. And we understand that the contemplation of death can be very fruitful. And so to these questions we answer yes. Okay, death, is it a tragedy? Is it a victory? Yes. Okay, it is a tragedy because death 
in the most real sense, is an unnatural thing. We were not created in order to perish and rot in a grave. We were created in the image and likeness of God, whose quality it is to never perish. So where is all this perishing and death and dying coming from? It comes from our disconnection, our unconnection. That's interesting. And the trumpet sounds. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Perfect time for me to say, is it a victory? Yes, it is actually also a victory. Because in this crucifixion that we see, it is not essentially a failure, is it? It's actually a victory at the same time. Because this one goes to death and conquers death in his crucifixion. A tragedy and a victory. Should you go to a funeral and hear people saying, it's so wonderful that so-and-so's died because he's gone on to meet our Lord and we're so happy. No, you're not. You're not happy. You've lived your whole life with this person in your life and now you have to live with them not in your life. That's a tragedy. It's not supposed to be like that. You can feel it's wrong. The wrongness of it is all over it. It's all over the situation of a death and a funeral. There's something wrong about that. Is it a sorrow or is it a celebration? Yes. Okay? Have you ever been to a funeral where they said, we're just going to have a celebration of life? No, you're not. Because even if this person lived to, to age 100, as St. Thomas More said, everyone in that room who's younger than them has never lived life without that person before, and life without that person just started, and that's a sorrow. That's it. You can rejoice all you want. You should also cry, because <laughs> that ain't right. That shouldn't, that shouldn't be. There's something wrong about that. It's a sorrow. Is it a celebration because there's victory in Christ, and that even those who die, they do not die in Christ? Yes, it's a celebration, but can you, does it have to be one to the exclusion of the other? No. Is it a fearful thing, or is it a freeing thing? Yes. As fearful as a fearful thing can possibly be, death is that thing. Because you can't even ask someone, what's it like? Everything else in life, you can say, what's it like? And someone can tell you. We all look at each other like kindergartners. On the first day of school, you can't ask, what's it like? Don't know. Now that's a fearful thing, right there. You can't be comforted, really, by anyone around you. Even a priest or a bishop, they never died before. They can't comfort you. They can tell you everything the church says, everything the scripture says. They cannot assuage the fear that naturally arises in you. But is it also a freeing thing? Absolutely, it's a freeing thing. Do you believe this? Is a question that Jesus asks. And I will say this. I heard some crazy thing once about death that I thought was really neat. Someone said, one great thing about death is I won't have to worry about that anymore. (laughs) Fill in the blank. That's funny, but true. What is the thing that you agonize about? And it just makes you miserable and sorrowful. And is it going to work out? Is it going to last? Is it going to live? Is it going to embarrass me? Is it going to hurt people? That thing that you're worrying about, at death you can say, hey... I don't have to worry about that anymore. That's right, you don't. And in a sense, there's some, there's some little trick of the mind there that's, that is right, true, uh, meet, and right so to do. 
to recognize that there's some element of that, I don't have to worry about that anymore right now, that's part of the contemplation of the four last things and the contemplation of death. Is it the end or is it the beginning? Yes. Okay? You get it. <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Death, yes. This is a great... Uh, we're, we're, we're going to St. Thomas... Or St. Thomas More. Blessed Thomas More here. We're going to go to John Cassian in just a moment. Uh, but he has a great thing about uh, what I would say is for whom the bell tolls. You remember the poem from John Donne, Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. We're talking about a funeral bell there. Uh, he has a great comment here. There is none old man so old, but that he trusteth to live one year yet. Isn't that true? There's no one who says, well, it's probably over now. No, they say, next year I plan to... which is not essentially wrong, but it's a funny thing, a little bit. And as for young folk, they look not how many be dead in their own days younger than themselves. Oh, no, 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 that doesn't apply to me. But they look to who is the oldest man in the town, and upon his years they make their reckoning. Okay, we just had a birthday uh, for Carl Countryman, who's the oldest person in our church. He's 90 years old, and every young person in the church says, 90, great. I got plenty of time. I don't have to do anything I'm supposed to do. I got so much time, uh, no problem. Every young person calculates on the oldest person in the town. Every old person calculates on one year more. And so uh, he makes this commentary. The wiser way were to reckon that a young man may die soon, and an old man cannot live long, but within a little while die the one may, the other must. That's a wiser way to look. And with this reckoning shall they look upon death much nearer at hand, and better perceive him in his own likeness, and therefore take the more fruit of the remembrance, and make themselves more ready thereto, more ready for death, but more ready for the fruit of the contemplation that you might not have endless decades before you. And if that's true, then what am I doing worrying about fill in the blank? And if that's true, why do I spend so much time fiddling around with fill in the blank? There could actually be some fruit in this contemplation. And uh, people say, oh boy, yeah, you'll be really ready for Christmas by the end of this. Yes, you will. (laughs) Because if the advent of Christ is not only his first advent, but his second advent, what a day it will be on Christmas, this Christmas, four weeks from now, when you'll say, I am one step closer to getting my act together. And part of it was contemplating the fact that I might not actually have decade upon decade. And if if I've always been... (laughs) wanting to to work on a particular miserable part of my own life and considered I have decades to to finish that project, how about maybe you don't? Which probably means that today is a good day to start making some progress. And John Cassian, this is the final thing we'll talk about today, and we've got, uh, therefore, some time to talk. John uh, Cassian is, uh, is a fellow from the fifth century, who wrote some very important works on monasticism and on the spiritual life. And he has a a fantastic quote from his work called The Institutes, where really in The Institutes, he is trying to establish 
the mentality of a monastery, okay? How should people think when they're going about in these habits, doing these hours of prayer during the day? How should you be thinking? Because if you thought that monks were a different order of human being, you should meet a monk. It's the same guy. (laughs) He still struggles with the same junk. He's not quite forgiven his father yet. He's always felt that he deserved this and never gotten it. That's a monk. Meet a monk, you'll see. (laughs) It's just like that. And so he's giving advice not only to the monasteries, but to us on the fruit of contemplating death. This is great. Just as he who is fixed to the gibbet of the cross, there's one there, no longer contemplates present realities or reflects on his own affections. One who is crucified with Christ, shall we say, is not distracted by worry or care for the morrow. What am I going to worry about tomorrow for? I'm nailed to this cross. I don't have to... uh, Oh, I don't have to worry about that anymore? What a relief, okay? One who is uh, fixed to the gibbet of the cross is not stirred up for the desire for possessions. What good are possessions going to do me? I'm fixed to the cross. I wish I had three down coats rather than two. And those boots are coming on sale tomorrow. Ugh, the boots. Come on. The boots. I, that's my talk. I'm talking to myself. Hiking boots. Okay. Okay. Big deal. One who is fixed to the gibbet of the cross is not inflamed by pride or wrangling or envy. What's the point in being envious? What's the point in being proud or wrangling? I'm fixed to the gibbet of the cross. Does not sorrow over present slights and is no longer, and no longer remembers those of the past. What's the point in going back and rehearsing all of my old wounds from my childhood and, and from my early marriage and from my early parenthood? What's the point in rehearsing all of those and nursing my wound and saying, you know, you were really right about that and and, uh, you were in the right and and they were in the wrong. There's no time for that anymore. You don't sorrow over present slights and no longer remember those of the past. And although he may still be breathing in his body, he believes himself dead in every respect and directs on ahead the gaze of his heart to the place where he is sure that he will go. So also it behooves us who have been crucified by the fear of the Lord to have died to all these things, not only to fleshly vices, but to every earthly thing as well, and have the eyes of our soul set upon the place where we must hope that we shall go at any moment. In this way, we shall be able to put to death all our fleshly lusts and feelings. To be crucified with Christ sounds like something very abstract and very... uh, theological, uh, but nevertheless, there's a practical element of it too, which is to say, if I'm crucified with Christ, then what am I so worried about for? And yes, the worry uh, is reborn anew every morning when the alarm clock goes off. You wake up and say, I'm worried about this again. Okay, it's true. It's not that wearisome. It's just how life goes. But nevertheless, if you are, as a Christian, crucified with Christ and your hope and your vision is fixed elsewhere, then you can spend some time thinking about these things, some element of your energy 
on these things, but knowing that one day you may die, and it might actually be today, you should probably spend a good bit of time either glorifying God in the miserable things that you have to do or the things that you're worrying about, making sure that the, the way you're behaving is a glorifying way to behave. Uh, or perhaps you could even prioritize your life in such a way that the things you're worrying about make their way to the bottom of the list and other things to the top. A reordering. Now, what's the fruit of thinking about and contemplating death during a season of Advent? Joy. That sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> Christmas Day, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, joy to the world. What is that all about? How can I be joyful? Don't you see all that I have to worry about? That's a misspent Advent right there. <laughs> you, miss, you misspent your Advent, and that's why Christmas doesn't feel like Christmas anymore. Okay? The four last things, the first contemplation is on death. And so we have a little bit of time for discussion is that too flippant, or, or have you got some other thoughts, or, or uh, Deacon Joshua? Yes, through my wonderful seminary education, um, I've just really been studying a lot of Senior Nicholas, who's been writing my dissertation on. And Senior Nicholas looked at death as actually a blessing, because it was meant to, death was meant for the human person to be reformed, and that we thought on death. You only had one hope, and that was in God. So he actually saw death as, yes, it's painful, and there's a punishment, but it's a punishment meant to reform you. And most of the early fathers would say that you were given this life here to reform yourself. Uh, and um, not only that, but uh, it's a, in some ways it was a blessing for them to be removed from the garden because um, St. John of Damascus teaches this, the demons when they sin against God are confirmed in their wickedness because they live in a place without time. Humans are given time to repent. Adam also confirmed in his wickedness. We're given this more life of time to repent because when we die, that's, that's it. There's more time to repent. So all the fathers would have seen our life as a struggle to turn towards Christ and place our hope in Him. Right. Anyone else? Comments, thoughts? We've, we've been through St. Thomas More and, and uh, John Cassian from the 5th century, a little bit modern, modern, 16th century, and ancient. Uh, it's an interesting thing that in our culture we do our best to banish death from all of our thoughts and from all of our contemplation and even our language so that we don't have to think about it don't have to look at it, don't have to contemplate. It's actually not the greatest instinct to do that. Um, that's not to say you fixate on death, but nevertheless, um, to be ever more cognizant of your own mortality can be a very helpful thing and actually help you to live life better um, with such a reality in mind. Uh, Mike? I have a Okay. In my view, once you've made your transition, that heaven is more like peace 
totally total tranquility. And I don't think that's a point place to be, be focusing on dependence. Uh, maybe I misunderstood that. In the earth, we're constantly confronted with conflict. And conflict forces contemplation. Those things can enhance repentance because of the consequences of conflict. Once you've made your transition, I don't see that as happening. I think the time to make our, our repentance and change our life is here. Not depend on death to give us an opportunity to reflect and make a greater repentance. It needs to be here where there's conflict. In my view of death, I don't think we can do that. I don't, I don't think it's going to be easy once we've died to make changes or repent of what we've done because everything's going to be blissful. Okay. The time to do it is now when we get in with conflict, which forces us to do that if we're able to force face the conflict. Well, you can see how the contemplation of the four last things are intertwined, and it's actually kind of hard to separate them. We've separated them as best we can. But before you really have got your contemplation of death down, it, you've already started to think about heaven and hell, because it does matter what heaven and hell mean in order for a contemplation of death to make any sense. But you've got to start somewhere. So we're, we're starting with death because not everyone would agree that heaven is a place of perfect stasis, where everything is exactly the same from now on. Uh, some and of the church fathers included would, would envision a development in the heavenly realm. In fact, well, the most common way, common phrase to put on it is what C.S. Lewis said in the, the last battle, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. I know it's a children's book, but he's expressing theology. And he says, further up and further in, if I've got that phrase right. And the idea is the children have actually died. Spoiler alert, sorry. <laughs> They're in heaven. But the nature of heaven is to go further up and further in. And each new world that they enter is the entrance to another new world that comes after that. In other words, it's not perfect stasis in that particular view of heaven. And when we get to the heaven and hell discussion, we'll talk more about that. Uh, next week, we'll talk about judgment. And then the third week, we'll talk about heaven and hell itself. And it, maybe, maybe all of these will, will sort of meld together in the end. Um, but that's good thought, Michael. Anybody else before we conclude today? Not that you can completely contemplate death in 40, 35 minutes, but it's an encouragement uh, to recognize uh, that the theme of Advent, Four Last Things, includes some solemnity. Um, it's not just hot chocolate and peppermint. It's, there's a moment where you say, hold on a second. If Christ is really returning, now he may not return before you face him uh, after your own personal death, but nevertheless, at some point, there's going to be a real, true, come-to-Jesus moment, uh, sooner or later. And, and the fact that we're not sure when that sooner or later is going to be, we might as well live the present as if it was going to be soon. Um, and the fruit of that... Um, can be very valuable indeed. Not just a warm and fuzzy feeling, obviously, but a true, um, uh, a true and honest look in the mirror at these bodies 
that are preparing themselves from, for separation from the soul, and the evidence is daily gathering <laughs> that the day draws nigh. Um, nevertheless, that's all we have for today, and we'll resume again next week. Thank you.